After a not often heard Betty White voiceover, we are welcomed to the new episode with a recap of the last. So, on the last episode of Always Be My Sisters, Sophia hates Max. Sophia learns the truth about Max. Sophia loves Max. Sophia marries Max. Quentin danced for Sophia and Max. Now begins part two of Sophia's wedding. Will she and Max make their dreams come true, or will their love go up in flames? Or is that Dorothy who's still lighting up her cigarettes? Or perhaps the heat is coming from Blanche's loins? So many questions, so much heat. So let's talk about all of that and more in today's episode, Sophia's Wedding, Part 2. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our things. No matter the mysteries that come And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Scampering across the kitchen, Dorothy is happy to see that she's all alone as she runs to the ne'er-used cookie jars by the sink. In her dark gray shirt, topped by a lighter gray sweater with matching pants, she checks to see that the coast is clear, now that she's grabbed her cigarettes from the jar. If you've heard Bee speak or seen her iconic photos of her holding a cigarette with sass or know that she died from lung cancer, you know that, yes, she was an actual smoker. So getting to sneak a puff on screen was probably a real delight for her. Needing a fix, Dorothy makes her way to the secret hallway of mysteries by the back garage door. Within seconds, we see a plume and hear moans of delight that are usually coming from Blanche's room. And just seconds after that, we hear sounds that Sophia was hearing at Shady Pines, a sad little fire alarm. (laughs) Poor Dorothy. The one place for peace was also located directly under the sensor. Like when Coco works in the back office and I open the door only to set off our fire alarm. Not because of cigarettes. I I didn't come here for judgment. No, I was saying the relatability. It happens. And it really, really just busts my hide to pieces. <laughs> well, you I'm get trying that, to work back here. You get that box too hot. You know, that's all. I do. And uh, <laughs> our kitty Dexter is in there with me on his little window perch. Yeah, you hammock. You converted him. He, yes. I know that he thinks about space. <laughs> And what's happening out there. He's totally self-aware. Yeah. The alarm was, well, it feels like alarm is too strong of a word to give that sound. It had about as much gusto behind it as an alert on one of those buzzers you get from the Olive Garden. And even though it was weak and Dorothy wafted the smoke away quickly, the sound has put both Blanche and Rose into panic mode. He's a priest, isn't he? Ellen is there, too, bursting into the kitchen in white pants and a teal blouse. Exorcism is a ritual. Every culture, every religion, they all use different methods. It's going to take all of them. Don't be 
scared. We've met before. Mother. My apologies. That isn't Ellen Burstyn. That's Blanche, who's quickly making her way to the phone to call the fire department. Rose is at her heels in khaki pants and a khaki beige sweater with a diamond pattern, which matched the one that used to be on my parents' wall in their condo. That was until they pointed out to the landlord that it was painted exactly like the U-Haul place down the street, and they were given permission to repaint. Rose is helping Blanche by reminding her the number for 911 is 911, but Blanche has already dialed and is getting help. Sheesh, good thing no one ever burns anything when they're cooking or the fire department would get real sick of their calls. Also, Blanche, honey, do we have some fire trauma or something going on? The alarm has been turned off. You never saw any flames, yet you are in an absolute tizzy, totally ignoring Dorothy, who's trying to tell you that everything's okay. Just to be safe, I'm going to dial 9 on my cell phone. I believe I know the source of her fire anxiety. <gasps> Do tell. She grew up in the South and she watched Gone with the Wind, in which I believe Atlanta, <gasps> Atlanta burns. burns. Oh. My dear, I don't give a hoot about this. That's right. That's what he says. I, yes, that's the famous quote. I've heard it many times. I like that theory that Gone with the Wind, I don't know, is that like a Southern movie? Like, what, was it celebrated in the South? I believe so. I'm going to say yes. And so, and she lived in a manor, I mean, a plantation. And, yeah, probably a, thought a forced, that was going to happen. A forced labor camp is honestly, I think, the new, the oh, instead of, current oh, terminology. Oh, call it real. what it is. Yeah, no oh, plantation. Oh, instead of plantation, a forced, forced labor, labor camp. camp. Oh, I like that. Yeah, me too. Call it what it I is. I prefer that, I mean. I don't like it. Well, yeah, I don't like any of it. I re- I'm totally on board with that theory. Thank you. Good job. Finally getting through to a fireman, Blanche is met with a familiar voice, an old friend, shall we say. Ed doesn't take Blanche's complaints of being on fire as a call for help so much as a call of another kind. Rose feels Blanche's trampy behavior in combination with the fire shares a resemblance to that of Mrs. O'Leary and her cow. Another place that experienced a great blaze, okay, it was a bit more severe than the smoke the girls are dealing with, was Chicago in October of 1871. While that fire has always been synonymous with Mrs. O'Leary's cow, there is, of course, a lot more to the story, including racism and sexism. Look out, Itchy! He's Irish! As for what led to the fire, Nat Geo tells us it was a deadly combination of the heat and building materials. The flames did start from the O'Leary farm on the southwest side of town, but before there was even a spark, the city was in danger. The city's buildings and even walkways were mostly made of wood. When that summer saw a fourth of the usual precipitation, everything in town was completely dried out. Once the fire was started, southwest winds created fire devils, which are basically fire tornadoes, which then spread the flames in every direction. The fire would go on to burn for over 24 hours until rain put it out. The blaze took out the entire business district, and it wiped out an area four miles long and a mile wide, destroying over 17,000 buildings and 73 miles of street. In the end, it was believed the fire killed 300 people, although only 150 bodies were recovered, and it left one-third of the city homeless. 
Because of the location of where the fire started, the O'Leary family was blamed first. Then somehow the story shifted into being that Mrs. O'Leary was milking her cow when it kicked, knocking her lantern into some hay. This rumor was built upon three things, according to WTTW. She was Catholic. She was an Irish immigrant. And worst of all, she was a woman. And only an Irish Catholic woman would be stupid enough to put a lantern next to a cow. Seeing as she was a real person and was blamed for the blaze that nearly destroyed the entire city, she was demonized. It didn't matter that no farmer would be milking a cow at 9 p.m. She was blamed. There were reports she had confessed to starting the blaze. That was false. Illustrations of the evening showed a grisly old woman, and she was usually referred to as such, sometimes even being referenced as being in her 70s when she was actually just a young mother only in her mid to late 30s. All of this had an effect on not only Catherine O'Leary, as the public scrutiny and questions had her becoming a recluse, but on the entire Irish community. As for the real cause, a man named Louis M. Cohn claimed responsibility, saying he and some other teen boys, including some of the O'Leary's sons, were playing a card game in the barn when he knocked the lantern over. Since that can't be 100% confirmed and he has since passed away, although Forward.com states he not only admitted it to friends, but again mentioned his involvement in his will. However, there are still theories that perhaps a meteor shower hit the barn and started the fire. Whatever the case, Mrs. O'Leary wasn't milking her cow and she did not start the fire. Whatever tramping she did was her business, Rose, and it had nothing to do with starting the Chicago Fire of 1871. Thank you. Questions from the symposium? I knew I I knew that the cow kicking over the lantern was crap. It was catchy, Mrs. O'Leary's cow. And it's yes, it really it really does have a ring to it, and it sounds like folklore already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like a fairy tale or something. A fable where at the end, Mrs. O'Leary learns the valuable lesson that she should neither be a woman nor a Catholic. That's right, or, or Irish. Irish. <laughs> <laughs> lesson learned. <laughs> Forgetting about her fire concerns, Blanche is lost in lust with Ed. So Dorothy grabs the phone from her and clears things up. There is no fire. We're all good. And no, Blanche is no longer on the line, so don't bother with all that hose talk. When Rose asks what set off the alarm if there's no fire, Dorothy says, cigarette, as if she was offering one. Rose passes and gets back to the important stuff, like what started the fire? A little firmer this time, Dorothy tells the single-celled organism she started it because she was smoking a cigarette. Unlike every other occasion, Dorothy has a reason for being irritable. She's mad at herself for picking up the nasty habit again, leaving Rose wondering, if you're so cranky about it, then why are you doing it? Dorothy says it's because she's been stressed about work and her mother's new marriage. Blanche happily and unprovokingly adds to the list, saying Dorothy's getting older, she doesn't go out much, and her chin is drooping. Appreciating her additions, Dorothy asks Blanche to just shoot her since she's already had the cigarette, much like a prisoner or soldier might have before an execution via firing squad. Before Blanche can add to Dorothy's smoking list, a small voice from the other room hollers, We're back from our honeymoon! Standing up to greet her mother and new stepdaddy, Dorothy cares more about Sophia finding out about the smoking than the fact that she's home. Going into the living room, Dorothy welcomes her ma with open arms. After a short embrace, Sophia slaps her across the cheek. A mother knows. 
but maybe in this case she doesn't. When Dorothy denies partaking in cigarette smoking, Rose becomes a slap recipient, which forces Dorothy to confess the truth, earning her another slap for lying. I'm not sure which lie it was, if it was because she was saying she hadn't smoked or promising to never start again 15 years ago when she had first quit. Either way, it seemed appropriate. I don't have the best recollection of the subject, and maybe you can help me out, Coco, but I feel like any other show in the 80s that touched on smoking either didn't acknowledge it and it was just something a character did because everyone was smoking then, or it was like a very special episode, like a teenager would find a pack or something. I can't think of like an exact episode or a show, but I feel like it was always the heaviest conversation. That happened in my life. When I was, Do tell. I was, I don't know, seven, eight, and up the street from where I lived was a park uh, called Brace Park in Burbank, I, locals only. And I went there with my friend. There was a, a baseball diamond there, and there was there were bleachers, and it was the 80s, so there was uh, those like kind of gravel ashtrays that were like kind oh, of like yeah. tall pedestals sort of mm-hmm. with sand in it, and it had like just, it was full of butts. I mean like- like in a humorous way. It was like a, Scary Movie 3, Queen Latifah. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah, in the drawers. Yeah, so it was like just stuffed with butts. And me and my friend went up there and grabbed a couple of them and were like smoking one. And you then, smoked a cigarette when you were seven? Yeah, and then <gasps> and then turned around. Uh-oh, my dad was there. No! Yeah. Oh, was, my gosh. Yeah, we did, I didn't, and yeah, I don't remember what happened. I'm sure I had a, a talking to. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, they were both smokers. Oh, right. So they have nothing to, no leg to stand on. Yeah, really. And I think that's why it was just like, don't do that. And I was like, okay. Okay, rewind. What was it like as a seven-year-old? Because you would go on to smoke for like 20-something years. Yeah. In that moment. Yeah, and I'm still quitting. It's been a nightmare. You've been quitting for like eight months. It's really difficult. But you're only down to like four a day. That's amazing. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I am doing very well. That's really good work. Yeah, the, uh, the nicotine patch I would recommend to anybody. And, and smoking pot. I smoke joints and, and it helps. Fu- and you've got your fume. I got my fume. Which is like flavored inhaling, basically. Yeah, and then you've got those other herbal, those celestial, celestial. Oh, yeah. Those ones with like raspberry leaf and mm-hmm. marshmallow in it. Yeah, those are. I actually really like herbal cigarettes. So that's, so, that's fun. There's too. a lot of options. There, out there are. And it will work and I will do it. You're doing it. You're and, actively uh, doing it. And you know what? I'd rather see you take eight months to whittle it down to nothing or one a day or whatever than for you to have had your heart surgery and then be like I'm never touching it again and so you're really just building like I can be outside and don't have to smoke or I can find other things to smoke instead and yeah, it's great this summer will be a real test of that yeah. and I, but I think I can I think I can do it and I think well I just want to yeah okay but when you were seven yeah didn't like it tasted bad did you uh, inhale? Do you remember? No, I don't you think just so. I don't think so. But like, I remember. I I I feel like I can. Re- I remember that taste, that first taste. Because mm. yeah, once you're a smoker, if you stop for a bit and then come back to it, the first one has this weird, horrible and wonderful element to it, where you're it's you're glad it's back and you're like, Wah. anyways, smoking is bad. Don't do it. Don't even try it. Just don't start. And uh, yeah, it's something I wish I had never picked up. And I, it was a, it, I mean, I had a lot, I've, I'm an anxious person. And so it felt like it helped me with that a lot. Yeah. Did it? I don't know. <laughs> Definitely made me have to poop more. <laughs> Nicotine makes you. Coco, would you like to hear some smoking stats? Probably not. 
well, from 1988. Hell yeah. (laughs) The CDC happened to have conducted a smoking survey in that year, and it found that at that time, 49.4 million, or 28% of the population, were actively smoking, much less than the estimated 91 million people who have ever considered themselves smokers. Among the current smokers in 1988, nearly 31% were men, Most smokers were between the ages 25 to 64 years old, and people with less than a high school diploma were the highest percentage at 34%. Another group highly affected were divorced couples at 42.6%. The study also found that the average number of cigarettes smoked a day was 21.3. I know you were drinking just then. I was. It was very close to a spit take. (laughs) That's a lot. That's hard work. However, 27% of those smokers smoked more than 25 a day, which is a lot. John Wayne. Yeah. Well, I think he was at like 50, which is like two packs or something, two and a half packs. Yeah. And I remember hearing about George Michael when he was at his peak of smoking, but he was smoking joints. It was like 25 a day. And any kind of number like that, I'm just like, how do you find the time? Like a cigarette, that's one an hour, and cigarettes take about 10 minutes, give or take. That's a lot of time smoking. Yeah. Well, they got to be doing other stuff. They're not just smoking. Well, yeah, and in 88, you could do it in your office. You could do it, I don't know when they stopped on airplanes, but you could do it, like, in restaurants. So, yeah, whatever you were doing throughout the day, you could pull out a cigarette and smoke it. Probably the library. Oh, yeah, probably. Oh, is that why old books have, like, such a distinct smell? I Do you think, think they because, ever allowed smoking in libraries? Oh, well, maybe not because of the fire hazard. Although I'm sure they did until, well, until Mrs. Le- O'Leary's cow <laughs> fricked everything up. Those little hooves. But I think the books smell like that because it's them like decomposing over time. Mm. I think. In fact, it was not until 1954. So there's a bunch of arguments about, this is according to the New Yorker, there are a bunch of kind of public arguments and editorials about why they should be allowed to smoke in libraries. And then... I think specifically the New York Library. And in 1954, a designated smoking area for writers was established. Ooh la la. Yes, I have to smoke. I'm writing. Dorothy apologizes for lying and smoking, but she makes the valid point that she has quit before so she can do it again. There won't be any more slapping because Max, who was left alone to get all of their luggage, has finally entered the home. He's glowing with delight and blushing with groomness. He had a wonderful time on their honeymoon at the Disney World Hotel. There was great food, lovely room, excellent service. Sure, that's great, but Rose wants to know what he thought of all the rides, you know, at the Disney World theme park. Well, Max only knew of and took one ride on that honeymoon, the Thunder Mountain Rail Sophia, the Space Mount Her, the Haunted Mashin. The Pirates of the Caribouti, Indiana Moans, Mrs. Weinstock's Wild Ride, It's a Small Whore, Matterhorny, Splash Mountain, Autopiness, Ah, Carousel, Pinocchio, my God, <laughs> Geppetto, <laughs> Star Wars Galaxy's Edging. Oh. (laughs) 
Traditionally, the idea of one of the girls moving out of the house has been a focal point of conflict when the subject of marriage or engagement has arisen. But for Sophia, there's been no issue. In fact, they just stopped by the house and brought their luggage for some reason before heading to the love nest of their own. Returning, having forgotten something, the couple tells the girls, well, there's a reason their house hunting hasn't been an issue. They haven't exactly done it yet, and they also don't have a place of their own to go to. Somehow, this never came up in conversation, and now the girls have to decide if they're comfortable letting Sophia live in her room, which I don't think she even bothered packing up, with her now husband. Heck, she's got her own bathroom and decent square footage. Her room could pass as an apartment. Just give her a little hot plate and a sink, and they'd be all set. Well, maybe not a hot plate. Coco, that's about a future episode. You'll learn about that later. I was going to put a cow sound effect there. I thought there was going to be like a oh. fire. Oh, <laughs> you should. You still could. Well, they're kind of, it, it works. Yes, you can put the cow there. <laughs> and in like season seven, you'll find out why. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, we can flash back to this moment right yeah. here of me even saying this right now in 2023. <laughs> yes. I guess Sophia isn't interested in returning to Brooklyn, where they could live in Max's house near his family. So after a formal invite from Blanche, Sophia sarcastically accepts, even though the house doesn't have a pool. As they head to their old-slash-new place, Sophia gives the girls a warning that they may encounter Max and his boxers at breakfast, and they're just going to have to deal with it, sending Dorothy into a cigarette-craving stress-out. But she's got Blanche and Rose literally at her side supporting her. Sharing what worked for her when she quit, Blanche suggests that Dorothy only smokes after sex. Sophia thinks that's a great idea, since a whole pack would last Dorothy the rest of her life. It's a new day, and Dorothy is, for the first time that we've seen, in her shower. Her bathroom is pretty and plain. There's framed art on the wall, a light blue and purple floral watercolor explosion of a shower curtain. As great as Sophia's room is, apparently her bathroom doesn't come with a shower, so she's come to Dorothy's asking if that was her that was already in the shower. After letting her mom know that she'd be out in a minute, Sophia scampers away. A moment later, leaving some wondering, how did Sophia get out of that huge room without passing Max? That someone is me. We're in TV land, though, so that doesn't matter. As he was expecting to take a shower with his new wife, Max appears in the bathroom as well. But unlike Sophia, he doesn't call out to check and see who is bathing. And since Dorothy is done humming, there's no telling who's behind that curtain. Hanging his brown robe up next to Dorothy's yellow one, a naked and most importantly glassesless Max hops into the shower, accidentally asking his new stepdaughter if she wants to play Connect the Freckles. Which bathroom are they in? I believe they're in Dorothy's bathroom. Why is Sophia in Dorothy's bathroom? I believe Dorothy doesn't have a shower, although I do think that the big hallway one that they made over has a massive shower. It's enormous. I remember that. It's huge. So we're just in some TV land. um, Well, it's a situational comedy, and this is the situation. It takes Dorothy a moment to connect herself to reality. It isn't until she starts asking Max to hand her something that she realizes the disaster that is currently taking place and she lets out a scream. Running in to check on her daughter, Sophia is scared, but her fear turns into horror when it's Max and Dorothy who peek out from behind the curtain. Before Max can excuse himself from the situation, Blanche and Rose have arrived to check on their friend and they are equally disturbed at the sights. 
telling everyone it was an accident and that he's blind as a bat without his glasses, he's handed them. And the first thing he does, he looks back in the shower and takes a gander at Dorothy's naked body. Oh, boy. After Blanche gets Dorothy her robe, she then approaches Sophia. Their original agreement was that the newlyweds would look for a place and be gone in just a few days, and it has now been three weeks, and they are no closer to being out on their own. The ladies have also taken an issue with Max's presence. His male energy is throwing off the vibe of the house, his snoring, messiness, and he not only pees on the toilet seat, he sometimes forgets to even open it in the first place. And as someone who lived with their 80-something-year-old grandfather, I can attest to this behavior. Acting unfazed by the attack, Max stares on. Sophia gets the message, though, and she demands that he leaves with her so they can get to searching right away. Since his maleness isn't appreciated by the ladies, he forces a show upon them. Blanche is delightfully surprised. Dorothy is straining for, like, kind of more of a look? And Rose is covering her eyes, leaving just enough room to take a peek. We're back on the boardwalk, but at a new, more business-focused section. The lovebirds have looked at an apartment, but it sounds like it was maybe in a partially assisted facility or more elderly-focused setup, and Sophia was not fond of the cable reception issues brought on by all of the hearing aids. Taking a break, they grab a seat on a bench and start arguing about Lifesavers candies, which have been around since 1912. Sophia only has peppermint to offer, but Max wants butterscotch. What is she, a convenience store? He settles for the mint. But he doesn't like it as much as he likes butterscotch, or as it goes by with that company, butter rum. Most of their flavors include an O in the middle. So peppermint is actually pepomint, there's cinnamon, but I suppose but-o-scotch wouldn't have been received very well. The couple bickers at each other like most older couples do. They appreciate the beach view for a moment, Sophia sharing how much Sal loved it. Max agrees. In fact, Sal loved the boardwalk of Coney Island so much, he actually wanted to open a pizza and knish stand, a business idea Sophia was certain would have been a moneymaker. Sadly, Sal's betting and loss of funds kept him from making that dream come true. Just then, a saxophonist arrives playing some of that funky jazz. This is the only acting credit for William E. Green, although Wikipedia did say he was in Bonanza, but that was not on his IMDb. But it's far from being his only entertainment accomplishment. Bill Green, as he went by, was a multi-instrumentalist playing saxophone, clarinet, and flute. He was a music educator at the L.A. Conservatory of Music and Arts and performed with Quincy Jones, Henry Mancini, Buddy Rich, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, and Dionne Warwick. Mocking his talent by asking the saxophonist if he knows any real songs, Max then gives the man a dollar and requests his dead best friend and dead husband of his new wife's favorite song, It Had to Be You. That song was written by Isham Jones and Gus Kahn in 1924. It quickly became a number one hit and was the fourth biggest song of the year. It remains a classic and has been covered by Dean Martin, Harry Connick Jr., Dinah Shore, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett with Carrie Underwood, and countless others. In honor of Coco's dad, I chose to play a clip of his favorite, Doris Day. It had to be you, wonderful you, it had to be you. In this moment, it's Max who is taking over the vocals, swooning to his lady, who by some miracle has found a butterscotch lifesavers in her purse. 
grateful for the simple things like a beautiful view, a wonderful wife, a classic song, and a good candy, Max remarks, it doesn't get any better than this before they dance in each other's arms. On this beautiful day, Rose entering the kitchen in a light blue dress with white pinstripes holding a bundle of daisies is loving it and can't wait to do something fun with the girls. She sits with them at the table when Blanche, in a gray t-shirt and pink unbuttoned button-up shirt, asks Dorothy what she feels like doing. She, in a high-collared pink blouse topped with a baggy green one, has one thing she would like to do, sit in a room and smoke 10 packs of cigarettes. Rose empathizes. She remembers how hard it was for her to quit. Now, I can't find anything saying Betty was a smoker. I just don't believe she was. In all of her game show appearances, she was never lighting up like the rest of the celebs on stage. Although Joan Rivers did joke years ago that she and Betty would go get high in the dark ages. So maybe she enjoyed some of that kind of smoking. And like Dorothy says, finding out that Rose, or Betty for that matter, was a smoker would be comparable to finding out Lassie the dog had a drinking problem. A metaphor that is lost on Rose as she thinks she's being told a fact about Lassie. But, you know, it does kind of add up. Lassie was always kind of tilting to the side. Why, that's an excellent idea, Lassie. That's an excellent idea. Sounds like Lassie's found our trouble. Is there something I can help you with? My stream has dried up again. This has to be done. Should find it right about this area here. Barely trickling, ma'am. Well, don't just stand there. Crank her up. You know what to do. Beavers can be pretty unpredictable. Come on, I'm not going to bite you. Huh? There now, go on. Oh, well, it's yelling time again. Huh? 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 That wasn't so bad, was it? Yes, ma'am. The beaver problem has been solved permanently. Mrs. Lester, you're quite a woman. Come on, Lassie. The newlyweds are back, and it's been a few days, and they have some exciting news. They've found a place. It's an idyllic beachfront location with the perfect amount of space. When the girls are taken to see it, they're shocked to find it's a beachfront property because it's a beachfront business. The four lease sign and the boarded up walls are hiding the concession stand the pair have signed a lease for. And no, not so they could live in it, but to work in it. When Rose says she doesn't understand, Sophia doesn't skip a beat in telling her that she should print that on a shirt. So here's the plan. These octogenarians are opening the pizza knish stand to make Sal's dreams come true. Now, this isn't to say 80-year-olds can't run a business. For heck's sake, we've got one running the country right now. But the energy it takes to open and then run a business, and a business that is physically taxing, well, that is one hell of an undertaking for anyone at any age. Sophia isn't scared. They've both run businesses before, and they aren't worried about it. But the girls are worried as that is not only a huge deal, but they're going to be stuck living with the pair until the business starts making money, which according to every article on Google takes at least two years, but is more often between three and five years. And of course, there are those businesses that never see a profit, which Blanche is well aware of. So she is quick to ask what plan B will be if they don't make any money. Well, for Sophia, That just means they'll have to talk about getting a bathroom nightlight. The ladies standing gobsmacked at the stand fades into the next scene where, weeks later, the stand, simply called Max and Sophia's Pizza Kanish, is getting ready to open for business. 
Do you know where where that Star Wars wipe was? There were several. Very strange. I think there were choices. about four or five of them. That was the same editing they had in the beginning to like go through the previous episode, you know, like previously on Golden Girls. Oh, do, I do, see. Do, 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 do. So it felt really weird that it continued because one, they never did editing like that or transitions like that. And two, it was weird to see it used for the recap and then it just continued. I wonder if that was if it's an economical decision to be like we are we've done these transitions already in this episode for the recap. Yeah, maybe like, like what what the technique or, or method like, we for like doing that. that or yeah, <laughs> why they would do that. You know, if they're like, oh, well, we just need like four more fades, crossfades or whatever. Yeah, I feel like they've done a couple in the past where it cuts to something funny. So they maybe do like a spin transition or a quick swipe or something like that. Yeah, like an eclipse show, too, I think. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, this one was strange. It, it definitely and maybe that was like, oh, we'll do that for clip shows and two parters. It's just not that kind of show. Maybe for like Charlie's Angels. Yeah. Or like Saved by the Bell. Definitely. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Time has passed. Yeah. It just didn't work for that show. On the boardwalk. Max is putting some finishing touches on the paint as Sophia is perfecting her pizza recipe, which, as Coco said, maybe should have been perfected at home before they went and, you know, opened a restaurant. I was saying that they maybe should just just make pizza at home. They are in their oh, 80s. Oh, just in general. Just yeah. stick to that. I mean, perfect it at home and then just, just they're, you know, nothing again. Not, I'm not, but that's old. I think back to my mom who was in her very early 60s, if not only 60, uh, when she opened Happy Hour, her bar and restaurant. I did not work there, but I would go there as often as I could. I would try to help out. I helped with the opening and all, you know, the painting and all of that stuff. And she did 10 times more work than me. And I was constantly exhausted. And I'm 25 years younger. It is so hard. And it's like, it's not just the difficulty of the work itself, like serving food, covering for the kitchen, making drinks at the bar, keeping the place clean, all of that. Then you finish doing that work. Then you go into the back and then you make sure you have stocked everything. You make your orders, you pay your bills, you do all that. Then you go home and then you punch all your numbers and then you're stressed going, okay, we got to make this much for this and we got to pay rent here. And that was like the hardest work ever, ever. I don't recommend it, but I do like restaurants and pizza. Yeah. It's nothing to do with age. It's, I mean, in one way it's very inspiring that, that they did that in this episode. Because there was kind of only one mention of it. Somebody was like, you guys are kind of old. And then they're like, okay, yeah, we're doing it, though. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, and they the, did do it. The idea is, well, that kind of idea, that's not maybe the best uh, avenue to go down. Right. But but a uh, a new adventure at that age is, a, is, I think, what they're going for there. Yeah. But that's like a, an incredibly risky really venture. <laughs> and you're on like a, a, a boardwalk in a major city. So you'd have to make a, a lot. A, so much money and so much pizza. Infinity knishes. Yeah, they should have done like a little knish cart. That is, yeah, exactly. Go make your knishes, go put them in the cart, go sell them on the beach, which I don't know that a hot pocketed food is great for the beach, but whatever. I'm sure they're delicious. Well, you know, a, pockets, a pocket food is good initially because if you drop it, you still got the filling you can drink out of the pocket. <laughs> you think of it all. That's a life hack. <laughs> Hot pockets on the beach, I say a okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hot Pockets on the Beach. (laughs) (laughs) Giving Max a piece to sample, she asks how it is. After a spew of compliments that she's a Mozart with mozzarella and a Picasso pizza, she stops him because she did feel that it maybe needed salt. Now that he knows it's not going to hurt her feelings, he tells her she also needs to add more garlic. Coming up the... are the girls, and they are quite impressed with all of the work the couple has put in. Of course it's great. Max knows pizza like the back of his hand, which he suddenly realizes has a weird spot he's never noticed. Red flag. As it starts to get late, Dorothy tries to drag the two home, but they have a lot of work left to do to make sure that they are going to be open for the weekend when the big beach bash is happening. I hope they can get Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack shooters. Yeah, here's the thing. We're not the wonders right now. We're Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooter. Blanche warns Sophia, it's starting to get nasty out. Sophia could catch a cold. You may recall we talked about the fact that you need to be exposed to the cold virus to actually catch the cold. But if you are working and you're older and you're in bad weather and you're stressed out about starting a new business, you might have issues with your immune system, which could make you more susceptible to catching a cold. Even if that wasn't an old wives tale, Sophia hasn't had a cold in like 40 years. She'll be fine. Star Wars wipe to Sophia and Max on the couch, clearly quite sick with colds. Sophia hasn't been this sick since the 1940s, except for her occasional heart attacks. And Max's body is killing him, not because he's sick, but because he's old. Max is in his brown robe. Sophia is in her teal house dress. Blanche is in a matching purple blouse and pant with a white shirt. And Dorothy is in one of her Beetlejuice art smocks. And they are all startled by Rose, who is wearing one of my favorite sweaters of hers, the one with the house and the palm trees, who is bringing them a St. Olaf tonic. It is guaranteed to make them feel better and to put hair on their chest, a proven and unfortunate side effect of the beverage. Coco, would you drink a tonic if you knew it would make you feel better, but you'd have like weird chest hair? Yes. (laughs) I would be happy with a little more chest hair. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not mad at it. But I wouldn't mind a little more hamburger meat up there, you know? What? Always the businessman, Max claims the tonic is helping and he's ready to get back to the stand. He knows that if they miss the big beach weekend, they won't make enough money to pay the lease. But Sophia knows how she's feeling and she knows Max is just as ill. So for her, it's all over. Utilizing the tool known as crosstalk, they start talking about how amazing it would be if someone came into their lives and helped with the business to make sure they made the money they needed. Ending their little story with puppy dog eyes towards the girls, Dorothy quickly looks around before telling them that they'll help. Even without any experience, Max and Sophia hire them as the new crew. Back to the stand at the... The girls are all getting to work. Wearing fancy outfits under their matching green, red, and purple aprons, Rose then blesses them with the St. Olaf story she always thinks of when she sees pizza. This time, it's about her uncle Gunter, who would sprinkle Parmesan cheese on his hair because it went well with his crouton eyebrows. This combination was due to his Caesar complex. Not that he had a complex about having power like Julius Caesar, but one affiliated with the salad. 
Oh boy, that was a long way to go for a joke that simply earns a rim shot. That's maybe the worst joke in the series to this point. Yeah. It's mostly for the time it took from us. Well, and it's just not neither neither thing that she says is funny and then yeah. the reveal of what it means is is less so. Yeah. That's too far for a St. Olafian to go. Yeah. That town would not be functioning if if that's the kind of common <laughs> citizen up there. Yeah, he, he fell into a vat of croutons and ever since he had a Caesar complex. Thank you. The joke doesn't work so. on any level. Sorry, Rose. It's a stinker. P.U. Hoping she'll stop talking if she ends up working with the Knishes, Dorothy suggests Rose changes stations. That is, unless the potatoes in the snack would have her thinking of an Uncle Potato Head. Ignoring her, Rose points out that Dorothy's just cranky due to her nicotine withdrawals. Dorothy agrees that that might be the case, but she really feels like she's over the hill of the most difficult part of quitting. That's amazing news for Rose. She can't believe Dorothy would be missing the sweet, sweet flavor of that first lighting of a cigarette, that she would no longer pine for that long, relaxing drag. Nearly hypnotized by the thought of a cigarette and rightfully pissed at her friend for triggering her cravings, Dorothy asks for a saucepan. No, not that small one, the big guy. When handed the huge pot, Dorothy gently places it on Rose's head and then bashes the side with a wooden spoon. A just response, in my opinion. At least she didn't just hit her in the head this time. Coming out from under the pot cross-eyed, Rose finds her bearings and gets back to work. Meanwhile, Blanche, who just witnessed this entire exchange, takes a moment to commend the wine stocks. Here they are in their 80s, and they're following their dreams, something she was never able or perhaps brave enough to do. Not taking the attention-seeking bait, Dorothy asks Blanche to grab the pizza from the oven. But she's too upset that Dorothy didn't inquire as to what her dream was or is. Well, that was for good reason. Dorothy doesn't need to hear another fantasy or sex-driven goal from Blanche. She's sick of everything about sex, leaving Rose to think out loud that it must be due to her not having any. With a dry tone, Dorothy asks if Rose would like the pot treatment again. She doesn't, so she gets back to work. Not done talking about it, Blanche gets back to her favorite topic, herself. And no, her dream wasn't about sex. It was about becoming a research scientist. She would maybe find cures for illnesses. As Dorothy begins to apologize for her earlier assumption, Blanche finishes her story with saying how she would then knock everything off the table and show those rabbits how it's really done. As the day goes on, the slowness of sales has the girls weary. No one is coming by. Blanche knows they need to promote the business. And Rose knows a story about a car maker from St. Olaf, the maker of the Vinderhoven rocket. It had eight tires, ran on cow manure, and bad promotion. No one wanted to see a cow on a toilet taking a poo. Checking in on her business, Sophia is feeling better and stopping by. The girls break it to her that they haven't had any customers. Sure, the sunshine brought everyone to the beach, but the heat had everyone in the water. This is no issue for Sophia. Walking closer to the water, she simply shouts, Shark! And within seconds, the is packed with potential customers. Thanks to that move, the stand sold out of everything. Max is grateful to the girls for working and for Sophia for helping save those swimmers from the shark, leading to her assuring Dorothy that she handles all of their financial information. Answering the phone, Dorothy has urgency in her voice when she tells the caller, they'll be right there. 
Back at the we find everyone standing in front of what once was their stand, which has somehow burned to the ground. Everyone is confused because they had all been so careful. But Dorothy has a confession. She made Blanche and Rose leave early because she was sneaking a cigarette. Rose isn't sure why she's confessing now. The cigarette must have burned up with the rest of the place. But what she's saying is that she may be at fault for the fire. Dorothy apologizes and Sophia quickly accepts it. Dorothy can't. She needs to see her mother upset. She needs to know how mad she is. Otherwise, she'll never be able to forgive herself, which is exactly why Sophia is acting how she is. She's a pro when it comes to guilt. Appearing from the ashes is Fire Chief Don Maxwell. The character was just Fire Chief on the show, but the actor was Don Maxwell. Don has done some voiceover work in film and television in addition to his 76 acting credits. He did some of the more intense shows of the 70s and 80s like SWAT, Beretta, Gemini Man, Chips, and The Incredible Hulk, Falcon Crest, and The Greatest American Hero. He's also a bit of a scream queen, appearing in Frankenstein, The College Years, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, Freddy's Nightmares, and Return of the Living Dead 2. Ah, one move and you're dead me! Where do you think you're going? Mister, get your family out of here! Now! Okay. That was a very funny character, and I like that he, it was a very firefighter thing to do to, like, assume that he was going to get some sort of proposition thrown at him. Oh, yeah. And he's like, we'll do the, what do you say? We'll do the fun stuff later. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. (laughs) I mean, what a, what a, that is a, that is a firefighter, (laughs) as I have seen. When the fire chief announces that they've found the cause of the fire, Dorothy begs to be handcuffed and taken away. He thinks she's aggressively flirting and instead offers to take her to dinner. Strangely, Blanche doesn't hop in when she hears he's into handcuffs, and Dorothy doesn't even get distracted by wanting to go on a date. Perhaps they're both just too distraught from the fire. It turns out it wasn't Dorothy's cigarette that caused the fire. It was a faulty coil in the oven. And just like that, they have paperwork for the insurance company and they can move on. Not before Blanche slips into a moving speech, though, about how they'll rise like a phoenix and return being bigger and better than before, to which Max and Sophia both respond with a, eh. Pulling Max aside, Sophia asks him why he responded like that. He doesn't know. It was just his reaction. But Sophia feels the same way. That's when they realize that they're missing their spouses, and the magic they were trying to recreate just wasn't there. Realizing there's a problem, Sophia and Max are going to go talk. The girls are going to head home and wait for her with cheesecakes at the ready. Sophia then asks him a genuine question. Do you love me? Which he does. But is he in love with her? Well, he's not. And he doesn't love her like he loved Esther. And Sophia doesn't love him like she did Sal. She's realized through the interviewing skills of Oprah that they might have thought they were in love, when they were just in love with a good friend. This has Max feeling like he's in the 1942 romantic drama Random Harvest. Originally a novel, the film was nominated for seven Oscars, including a Best Actor nod for Ronald Coleman, Best Supporting Actress for Susan Peters, Best Director for Mervyn Leroy, and Best Picture. Greer Garson was also nominated, but was too busy winning for Mrs. Miniver. The translation of Random Harvest into an outstanding motion picture resulted in one of the year's big entertainment events made by the very same studio 
and by the same producer, Sidney Franklin, who gave you Mrs. Miniver, and with the same glorious star of that great drama. Random Harvest, in its preview engagement, received overwhelming acclaim from enthusiastic audiences. What Sophia can't believe is that they had a whirlwind romance and marriage, only to realize it was a mistake, something she thought was reserved for teenagers. When it comes to their relationship, she doesn't want a divorce. She can't be doing that so close to death. She's Catholic. So they'll just legally separate. Max will go back to his home and family in Brooklyn. Sophia will stay with the girls. Even though they're breaking up, she is leaving things open to a friends with benefits situation. Max is surprised she's up for that, you know, given the whole Catholic thing. But she's just trying to get into heaven. She's not trying to be a saint. One last time, they kiss, remembering how good things were for that group of four. They were young, healthy, alive, together. They needed nothing more. With another appearance of the saxophone man, it had to be you as played for the group of four, as Esther and Sal are still with them, and the two dance their marriage goodbye. Hey, mister, you want me to play it had to be you for the two of you? I want you to play it for the four of us. Coco, you had not seen this episode? Never. Okay. No. Oh, yeah, because you hadn't seen the first part either. And that was a pretty emotional ending. Yeah, I felt emotional during it, and I liked... It really just struck me how mature a choice that was hmm. and how mature a conversation that was and how they didn't. I was saying before we started recording how I think people after, you know, of a certain age and and really all throughout life, and it doesn't really matter, can be so afraid of being alone and like, quote, dying alone that they would maybe stay in something that wasn't best for them just to have a person with them as they near maybe the end. And not only that, but starting a business, too. Yeah, start, yeah. Just They were like, fears be damned. Yeah, really, really great. But I like that they that they came around to what it was, is that like, they were in love with the past. They were in love with how they felt about their spouse when, when they were kids, you know, mm -hmm. essentially. And neither of them took it anyway. Yeah, it's not they, a defense. They, yeah, they both knew where they were coming from. And so it wasn't like, you're married now. How dare you talk about Esther? You know, it was like, their relationship was almost a way to keep those people even more alive with them. And I would expect for people that age that they wouldn't they wouldn't know how to talk like that. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't know to speak from the heart and that life is short. And that if you have something there, you you I mean, it's worth giving it giving it a shot. I like that, too, that they were like, let's do let's do, let's yeah. try this. Let's try all of this. Yeah. They didn't overthink any of it. Yeah. They just wanted the, to experience it and be together. And yeah, they were trying to recapture something that was impossible, but it was still very good and sweet and loving. And um, and it was kind of reckless, but not dangerous. It was except for, yeah, the financial. It, of, it was like, OK, so you opened yeah. a stand instead of finding a place. So that was like kind of nasty to do to the girls since you had made this agreement. But it's not like they were being totally out of control or anything, you know? Yeah, they weren't gambling or something. Right. I mean, literally right. gambling. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was, yeah, it was a beautiful moment and that, yeah, that song at the end was was a, a great, uh, a great thing to, to, end, to end it on. It was really beautiful. And I know we always joke about being old, but I think we both silently maybe felt the same way like when he was, when they were sitting on the beach arguing about the lifesavers. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, 
that that felt like us how we'll sit there and it's just the two of us and maybe we're just on the deck staring at nothing you know and it's just like oh this is nice like this what more do you need that, that's what i was gonna say it's the it's the most important thing it's the best thing yeah yeah just just being together and so it's yeah it's really it's lovely they got to be yeah and they and it's like it's also like um not naughty but just like an unexpected turn it's completely unexpected turn in one's life that you'd end up marrying your ex your your spouse's best friend from right. 50 years ago yeah so or 30 years who ago. you hated for so long yeah that too yeah that and that people kind of yeah you see the but the, i think the intensity really the intensity of love and hate can kind of bump up against each other sometimes yeah and, and, and kind of work in concert together yeah too. yeah as and well, she yeah. had trained herself i'm sure to just like not see him like that you know when oh, the four sure. of them it's like that doesn't exist no that's max why would i ever and yeah, it's to kind of get to shift your, I feel like that with you, like we were casual friends for a long time. Then we became like best friends. And even then it was like, no, that's just Josh. Yeah. That's my friend, Josh. What do you mean? I'm not going to kiss him. Like, what are you talking about? Just because like, that was my brain. It was like, oh, you are in another relationship that doesn't exist. We're just good friends. And so it's kind of that same idea where it's like, oh, I guess if we shift how we look at this, we can see what's here. We did it. We did it. We fell in love. We did. (laughs) And we make pizza and knishes, but it's really just the pizza is love and the knishes are kisses. (laughs) (laughs) They are usually potato filled. Is potato. Yay. Is potato. Is potato. Better ingredients, better pizza. Just kidding. Is potato. What Coco and I found to be the most moving part about this episode was the honesty. Max and Sophia could have let their fear of growing old alone keep them together. They could have settled into whatever life was easiest, dying alongside their friend. Instead, they looked inward and listened to their gut feelings about their romance and came to the conclusion that they were chasing the love of their previous life. The memories, the laughs. But you can't capture lightning or love in a bottle. So they knew it would be best if they just went their separate ways. If only everyone had that kind of insight and courage to do what is right for them. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Please, I beg of you, I know you don't want to, but please join us next week for Brother, Can You Spare That Jacket? He wants to go. He's like always meowing at the crows, but he just wants to go talk to him. Yeah. He's like, hey, guys, what's it like to fly? What are you? Why do I want to? Why do I want to kill you so bad? (laughs) That was fault. Fault? That was fault. (laughs) So you open the book like a kid's book and then the plastic goes out. Sounds like an Easter basket. (sighs) Yeah. Original ASMR. Mm -hmm. Oof. Chapter one. The catcher was in the rye. That was J.D. Salinger writing The Catcher yeah. in the Rye. I don't know if he Good was job. in New York, but I think it I think it reads. It does. Oh, library. Oh, I don't like math. You got to keep them PG-13. 
uh, Epp Skeet Center. <laughs> <laughs> There's no basement at the Golden Girls' house. <laughs> You know. Somebody get Danny Elfman in here. I heard it and I was like, that had to be right. It had to be right. Which I love. I love, I I love, love things full of stuff. Give me a pocket food. Yeah, I love it. Oh, pizza cone was cool. Dippin' Dots are too cold. I agree. Here's the thing, Dippin' Dots. And when do they just become the ice cream of now? Because it's been of the future for the whole time they've existed. In 1988, the wow. same year as this episode, microbiologist Kurt Jones, this is from, uh, well, this is from DippinDots.com, used his knowledge of cryogenic technology to invent Dippin' Dots, an unconventional ice cream treat that's remarkably fresh and flavorful, introducing the world to beaded ice cream. Wow. Hot pockets. If you want to live like me, just drink the inside of your hot pocket. If you drop it on the beach, it's fine. I heard you're not <laughs> even supposed to eat the pocket. <laughs> if your foot's small enough, that could be a little sock. <laughs> sock pocket. <laughs> you got to have hair. You got to have that hair. You got to have that hair. Wink. <laughs> Mur- boardwalk. Ah! You're a dirt bag. Wow. Children of the Corn 3. Random, Random Harvest. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.